Are we, are we live now? I'm recording. You're listening to Mumbrella Cast. Mumbrella, Mumbrella, Mumbrella Cast. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Vivian Kelly. Joining me to break down your week in media and marketing is Mumbrella's senior media reporter, Hannah Blackiston. Hello. And reporter, Brittany Rigby. Hello. Plus, coming up later, I sat down with director of Optus Sport, Richard Bayless, to chat about the time he had the Prime Minister on the phone. Whenever the Prime Minister's calling your CEO and saying, hey, I'm not too happy about this, you would call that a a significant challenge. Dealing with consumer backlash. I think it took a long time for a lot of people to get their head around what it meant that a telco like Optus was starting to stream uh, some of their favourite sports. And what's next for sports streaming? We've got a plan to offer 4K in 2020, which is a big uh, strategic point of us moving to the next level. But first, the week's topics. Coles reveals its first Christmas campaign under CMO Lisa Ronson. Aldi welcomes the silly season with a magic ham. Is Melbourne Cup losing its shine with consumers? So this week, supermarket giant Coles released its first Christmas campaign under its new chief marketing officer, Lisa Ronson, who joined earlier this year from her post at Tourism Australia. Now, after being behind such an iconic and successful and column-inch grabbing campaign, such as Dundee, which was Tourism Australia's Super Bowl campaign, everybody was waiting to see what Lisa would do at Coles, particularly as supermarket advertising can be quite basic in the fact that it just needs to convince consumers to walk into the door of Coles, not Woolworths, and so much of that is about price. So much of driving foot traffic is specials, deals, and the perception of good value and also, you know, the reality of good value. But perception is so key here. So Coles has had ads in the past with those big red fingers, down, down, prices are down, which I think people were quite dismissive of and were quite divisive, but obviously worked because people just want their prices to be down. So Lisa's uh, released this campaign by its agency, Big Red, which is based on the idea of thanking Australian consumers for allowing Coles into their homes at Christmas time for over 100 years. And I spoke to Lisa on the phone about the campaign and she said, as well as sort of saying thank you, it's about trying to communicate to consumers about how Coles can help you at what is a really fun and magical time, but what is also a really stressful and anxiety-inducing time because you're entertaining, you've got the politics and personalities of families coming together and it's Coles trying to show that over the years, throughout various periods in history, Coles has been there and will continue to be there. Now, when the ad came through, we did have a, a bit of a joke about how long it would take for Curtis Stone to appear on screen. He's obviously a celebrity chef and Coles ambassador and how long it would take for us to see a ham. Now, obviously, both of those are in there. Hannah, what did what did you think of the campaign aside from seeing Curtis and seeing the ham as, as we always knew we would? Obviously, I loved Curtis and the ham. Um, so, nostalgia is quite right I think it's quite a safe quite a you know gentle I'm not sure gentle is the right word but it's very uh soft it's set to the theme song of thank you for being a friend it's kind of hitting all those you know family friendly points 
I thought it was incredibly inoffensive, which then shocked me when we were attracted a bunch of comments from people who seemed to deeply hate the ad for some reason. To me, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't shooting anything out of the park, but there was nothing about it that I would hate. There was nothing about it that I was going to switch over for. I think, you know, it's a pretty, pretty middle of the road effort. (laughs) Some of the criticism that you're referring to there is obviously in our comment thread where people are more likely to go if they've got negative feedback than if they want to tell Lisa they think she's done a Mm. great job. But part of the criticism is uh, to do with that backing track. So it is the Golden Girls, thank you for being a friend, but it is a cover of that song. And the criticism is that it's too sort of somber and sad Mm. a version of that song instead of being uplifting and fun and I guess the other point is is a supermarket really a friend you know you let them into your house at Christmas because you have to because you have to get food and you have to get that side of Christmas sorted so that's been the criticism but I think you're right that it's not groundbreaking it's you know obviously not on the scale of Dundee but it is just an ad for a supermarket and I know that in the UK department store Christmas advertising is obviously a huge deal Mm. it's almost event television and you've had the sort of backwards story of Elton John feature last year and all sorts of really 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 emotional full-on campaigns but we don't have that here and I think some people to automatically expect that Lisa Ronson, the Chief Marketing Officer of Coles, could step into that role and bring that scale and magnitude of advertising to Australian supermarkets straight away was probably not a fair prediction that she could do that, you know, with the budget that she has and with the traditional advertising tropes that we have. You can't just suddenly come in and do an Elton John campaign from nowhere. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like when I think back onto last year's Christmas, like nothing stands out. There's definitely no, you know, award-winning Christmas campaign that sticks in my head. It's usually more, I don't know, pav and prawns or ham, obviously. Um, Yeah, and I think, I mean, I think she's done a fine job. Like I think if... You know, if I was deciding where to go, there's no way that song's not going to get stuck in your head. So maybe oh, that it's been alone. stuck in my yeah. head nonstop <laughs> so since that they alone. sent me the ad on Wednesday. <laughs> nonstop. And I said that to Lisa. I said, oh, that song is just going to be in my head for the rest of the year. I think that's what they learned from Down Down. Because yes. no matter how much you hated that ad, that bloody song, <laughs> once it was in there, you were never getting rid of it. Now, speaking of hams, which are obviously a staple of uh, Christmas advertising aldi the discount german owned supermarket also released its 2019 campaign which had a never ending ham and i think the insight informing this ad is that consumers do feel like that christmas ham just never ends and you're having toasties and you're having leftovers all throughout the holiday period into the new year and you do get to the point where you think oh my god when is this going to end so The ad has a sort of magical ham that enchants and intoxicates a town and, you know, keeps keeps feeding them. Hannah, as a vegetarian, I feel like this ad perhaps (laughs) isn't aimed at at you. It's probably not what you're after at Christmas time. But how did you think this ad stacked up your feelings about a never-ending ham aside? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, (laughs) the never-ending ham will not stop me from going to Aldi. Let's make that a point um yeah I thought this was a good one I it's a bit quirky it's a bit weird um some people are saying I've seen some criticism that maybe it's a bit too quirky and maybe it's not 
instantly obvious what it's trying to do, but I think that's kind of Aldi's brand, isn't it? Like I feel like their advertising in the past has been quirky. They do some weird stuff from time to time. So I think as far as they're concerned, for them to do, you know, a Coles-style family around the table ad would have been a bit weird. So I think, yeah, I think as far as Aldi's attempts go, this was a good one. Um, One really interesting fact that I would like to point out, which has been pointed out multiple times in in our comment thread, is that this was filmed in Tasmania, and Tasmania does not have any Aldi stores. Yes, and I I, I understand that some Tasmanians in our comment thread are a bit (laughs) upset about that. Look, to be fair, the creative agency and the various people involved would just be looking for the best location to shoot in terms of visually, in terms of what they can get access to, in terms of permits, in terms of all of that. So their concern wouldn't be, oh, we can't film next to this mountain because people who live near this mountain can't can't buy our ham. That's sort of not not the consideration. And to be fair, most consumers watching that ad will not be aware that that's in Tasmania and will not be aware that Tasmanians don't have access to Aldi. And even if they became aware of those facts, if they're Sydney-based and they like the ad and they want the ham, they're not going to boycott Aldi on the basis of, you know, it's, it's absence from Tasmania. Uh, but you, you're totally right about the quirkiness and, and Aldi's agency BMF has gone down that path for a long time. They've had quirky ads to do with loyalty programs or Aldi's lack of loyalty program. Uh, they had a Christmas ad last year where Santa got lost in the outback and, you know, Australian outbackers helped, helped him get his sleigh back in, back into the air. So you're right. They don't do the whole come and have your prawns and sit around the table. They're about building a, a different brand because as well, I don't think they want to be seen as up against Coles and Woolworths in that same sense. They are obviously an alternative and they are competing for that market share. But from the point of being different, from the point of being good different, you know, which is their which is their line. Mm. Um, Brittany, did you have a favourite out of Aldi and Coles? I don't know. I think it'd have to be Aldi because it was – kind of interesting and fun and reminds you of those kind of quirky indie films that you see at like a random film festival. And I think the story was really there with that one. And there were not only just in terms of what Audi represents as a brand, but interesting messaging about um, what a never-ending hair means in terms of value, knowing that when you go to Audi, you're going to get good bang for your buck, that kind of thing. But yeah, I kind of disagree with the commenters on the Coles one as well, because I I liked it. And I think the friends line kind of prompted me at least to think about how you end up as kind of a Coles household or a Woolworths mm-hmm. household or an Audi household based on where you live and, and what your family has bought and whatever. But, of you know, whatever you think about any other brand in any other category, you are food shopping every week, sometimes multiple times a week. You're having these brands in your home, you're unpacking, you've got their, well, in my house at least, we use the um, their bags as, you know, then rubbish bins because we don't have space for an actual rubbish <laughs> bin. And so I feel like Woolworths in my case branding is just there all the time. And so I thought that it was kind of clever to be like, this is how much we're a part of your life. Christmas is a really special, important time of the year for you, for your family, therefore for us, because we're facilitating that. And the ad that they've got running alongside their main TVC really highlights the, I think they're prawn skewers. 
and it was made very clear that they're $2 each, really cheap. And I think as well that kind of accessibility is is nice to see and as you said, it's not just, you know, a really fun magical Santa Claus time but can be really financially difficult, financially stressful, something that you really have to budget for. And so I think playing in that space is clever for Coles. Um, It's clever for Audi too, because that's kind of what they're known for. And I think the ham that never stopped giving kind of alludes to that and isn't as explicit, but I liked both. I think they kind of work for different reasons and yeah, I'm I'm kind of a Maybe I'm not in a bad mood this week, but I like both of them. <laughs> I love positive, Brittany. My goodness. Maybe we can try again next week. Well, <laughs> next week we'll finally have the Woolies ad and Brittany will be in a bad mood and she'll be like, nah, I hate it. <laughs> Woolies is like the supermarket. Like that's my supermarket. She's just said, so, so I'm, I've got high expectations. Yeah, she uses their bags as bins so Gauntlet they can't let her do been thrown, Woolies. <laughs> Up next, is the Melbourne Cup losing its shine? So it probably didn't escape anybody's attention that the Melbourne Cup was on this week and it was the first time in a long time that the horse race has been broadcast on Network 10. Network 10 paid a lot of money for the race, which happened to sort of coincide with an increasing sentiment amongst some consumers that the Melbourne Cup and horse racing in the way that it treats the animals is unacceptable. It's worth pointing out it's not a new sentiment. It might be new to some people, but it's definitely something that's been around for quite some time. Part of the reason it's really ramped up, I guess, this year was an investigation on ABC's 7.30 to do with what happens to race horses after the fact. So there was an increasing sense of nup to the cup amongst some people, but there's no denying that there's still a lot of people and a lot of powerful people who enjoy and embrace it. So it's it's not as simple as everybody's turning away. Uh, but Hannah, ten would have bought this, you know, for for the ratings, for the people it can bring, and then for the associated brand partners, you know, the amount of people it can connect them with and change their minds about their advertising partners' products and whatnot. So how? did it go in terms of ratings, particularly compared to previous years? So for the race itself, which is the ratings that everybody reports on, uh, 1.32 million Metro viewers was what Oztam was reporting. Worth noting, 10 said uh, that the race did finish later, which meant they were claiming 1.44 million. Either way you shake it, though, that is less than last year, which was 1.83. Um that race was up on 2017, 1.7 for 2017, but they were all down on 2016, which was 1.9, and 2015, which was just over two. So it does seem to be in decline, although in saying that, 10 are saying they had 90,000 people watching it on the live stream at the same time. So again, we're going to have the issue here where back you know, well, possibly not in 2015, but before that, especially people would have only been watching it on TV. Now, of course, a lot of people not necessarily watching it on TV. Um, one of the issues we have, especially, I mean, with any live sporting event, especially an event like this is it's very often a group watch. 
people have got it on at the office, they've got it on in the pub, they've got it on wherever, but that's the same every year. That's not yeah. different. I have I have heard that defence that the TV ratings decline can't be accepted as the full story because so many people do watch it at functions, at events, at bars, in the boardroom, at work. But you're right, that's always been the case. That's the case with the State of Origin on nine. That's the case with the AFL Grand Final on seven. It is a group watch. People are getting together, particularly as it's during the work day, if you're not blessed with a public holiday like Melbourne. So I get it that maybe the numbers aren't 100% accurate, but it does feel like it can't be a coincidence that there has been this decline when it's so close to the ramping up of that of that backlash. And, of course, if you were an advocate of NUP to the cup, uh, you would be, and they are, taking that and, and running with it, that their belief is that people are turning away from it. Um, but, I mean, there's still a lot of people engaging with it. It's not like it's about mm. about to disappear. So it's sort of it's one of those things where, of course, because ratings are down, if you're not to the cup, you're going to say that's fantastic. But 10 are also going to say that, you know, it, it did really well and it still had a lot of viewers for what is a daytime event. I think it's interesting that 10 has this event now and the sentiment not to the cup is largely driven, I'd say, by sort of a younger Gen Z millennial audience. And 10 Brands itself is kind of the younger under 50s um, network, I should say. So it feels like a weird alignment there. And I do think it's only going to get more and more unpopular. The people who are kind of uncomfortable with it probably only going to grow in numbers. So I wonder, I think the trend has started to emerge, but what it'll look like next year, even into 2021, I think it's only going to become less of a thing to support the Melbourne Cup. So you've hit on Tan's uh, main point that they wanted to put forward after the event there. Uh, they wanted to put forward that they are delivering a younger demographic to the cup than perhaps has been delivered before. It was the most watched. It and the um, presentation afterwards were the most watched programs in all three of the key advertising demographics. That's 16 to 39s, 18 to 49s and 25 to 54s. But Tenor claiming that they did bring more under 50s than have been brought in the past. And um, in some comments from CEO Paul Anderson, he said in the long run, their goal is to continue bringing younger audiences to the cup. So I think, which, you know, is what they like. That's the space they like to play in. They like to play in the demos and they like to play in the under 50s. So I can see why that would have appealed to VRC because obviously for something to continue it needs to continue appealing to younger audiences but I also do agree with you in that I would say the majority not the majority sorry I would say that um a large proportion of people who are up to the cup are going to be younger people so it will be interesting I think to see in the coming years 10 have got this for five years obviously I think it'll be interesting to see whether that trend continues up next I speak to Optus Sports Richard Bayless Joining me now on the Mumbrella cast is Optus's Director of Sport, Richard Bayless. Welcome. Hi, Viv. Good to be here. So, look, there's a lot going on in the world of telcos and sport and streaming. So, one of the things I wanted to get to first was why are 
the telcos increasingly moving into sports and streaming and content in that way instead of just being a provider of telecommunication services? Yeah, it's a good question. I think a lot of people probably went to that question when Optus first acquired the rights to the Premier League and moved into the path of Optus Sport. I guess it's all about differentiation, really, and offering something to the market that your competitors can't. And we've seen other telcos kind of go down different paths, whereas uh, Optus and, and some overseas as well have gone for more the streaming, whether that's in entertainment, lifestyle, uh, sports broadcasting, where Optus has kind of done all of those things. Uh, and in my realm, focusing on Optus Sport uh, into live sporting broadcasting or streaming. It's a way of standing out from the crowd, if you like, and offering something different that you think that you know the consumers out there might want. And look, it's always fun to hate on banks and telcos, I think, and insurance companies in the eyes of consumers. So is it risky for a company that already lends itself to people having a whinge moving into something that people are so passionate about, such as sport? It's such an opportunity, I guess, to let them down. Yeah, you could definitely say that. I think you probably, the key word there is opportunity. It can kind of go both ways, can't it? I mean, the fact that, you know, you can maybe turn that sentiment around and show yourself in a different light and offer something different to what, um, let's say, a usual telco might do. But there's also the opportunity to get it wrong. And I think if you go back to when Optusport first started sports streaming, the sentiment initially was, you know, more negative than positive. It was a disruption and it was also different to what people were used to when it came to watching something like the Premier League, for instance, or the World Cup. You know, people saw that as a disruption to how they're comfortably watching these things normally. So, you know, in that sense, there was um, some hurdles to overcome in terms of sentiment. I think we've really done a good job in that. I think now people realize that not only do we have the rights to these things and we are the place to watch certain sports, but we also care about it. It's not just about us buying it and saying, you must pay us money to watch this, you know, holding it to ransom. It's actually about us proving that we care about it. We want to do it properly. And I think we've done that over the past couple of years. And when I was researching for this interview, I did come across an opinion piece from Umbrella from before my time here, uh, which was to do with your delayed EPL coverage and letting people down. So, and I think that's sort of when the term Floptus got to rear its head. How did you, were you with Optus at that time? So how did you deal with that and how did you bounce back from that and win consumers back? So that first came about, and I like as well, Viv, how you sort of separated yourself from that and said that you weren't here at the time. I, thanks, I, thanks I wasn't. This op-ed is, is dated uh, September the 9th, 2016, and I was offered the job on Melbourne Cup Day 2016. Okay, so you've covered your tracks. That's good. <laughs> now, I, I was there at Optus Sport from the start, and when I say the start, I was at the previous uh, broadcaster of the Premier League when Optus first acquired the rights. And I remember exactly what I was doing at the time when it was announced and the press release went out. I was about to read a news bulletin where I was – working before and I didn't have enough time to take it in. I read it, the press release and went, oh, that's too confusing. I'll work out what that means mm. later on. And I think it took a long time for a lot of people to get their head around what it meant that a telco like Optus was starting to stream uh, some of their favorite sports. But in, in to answer your question, you know, the delays that come with OTT streaming, digital uh, over the top streaming, that's inherent in the technology. That's three and a half years ago now that the article you're referring to and the issues that initially came up and three and a half years in our industry is light years really, isn't it? I mean, things move so quickly. So the technology has improved. The delay itself has come down to better than industry standard in a lot of our uh, ways of watching. And it is different too from device to device. If you're watching 
you know, with a fetch box at home on your big screen or if you're watching uh, via Apple TV or even to your laptop or iPhone, it does differ one to the next, but the technology is such that it's not exactly the same as traditional uh, broadcasting, which a lot of people would have been used to at that time. So speaking of those different screens that you can engage with when using Optus Sport, it wasn't that long ago that people would have assumed that consumers would only watch live sport on a big screen. You know, they want to see all the action up close in intimate detail. So what has changed that people are now willing to watch on what is realistically a tiny screen in in the form of their smartphone? Yeah, it's the irony, isn't it? The fact that, you know, 20... 15, 10 years ago, people were going bigger screens and, and better resolution, etc. I think what's forced that change or is basically the fact that people want the optionality of being able to watch things wherever they are. They don't want their life to be interrupted or changed based on one game of football or one race or, or one event or one TV show, whatever it may be. I think people want to be able to go about their lives while still, you know, engaging in their favorite TV shows. Um, but also, you know, it's come about by, I, this is my opinion, I think more of a society change where we are so driven by screens, particularly younger people. You know, you see people quite easily using one, two, three, four screens that, um, you know, watching on a, whether it's a mobile or a tablet, it's quite normal. You know, when we were growing up, you know, not that we're that old, but when we were a bit younger, that probably wouldn't have been the case at all. But now it's completely normalized. And also the technology, the quality of the picture you can see on your phone screen is much better than what you would have got on a big screen 10 years ago anyway. So it's just the way life has evolved that I think it's become normalized and will continue to be so. And do you have any data on how people are engaging with Optus Sport in terms of whether it's a majority through an actual connected television or whether most people are doing it on the bus on their smartphone? What sort of data do you have on that? Yeah, we do have quite a bit and it's really interesting to see. It, it, a lot of it comes down to time of day and whether they're watching live sport or watching something catch up or you know, mini matches, highlights, interviews, because our on-demand functionality is really strong given that most of the football we broadcast is at silly o'clock, you know, overnight on the weekends or super early midweek. So it means that a lot of our viewers will watch football live on the big screen at home, whether it's via a fetch box or Chromecasting, whatever it may be, maybe via Xbox or, or Fire TV on the big screen. But then during the days, particularly Monday to Friday, we're seeing huge viewership in Commute times, for instance, morning and evening, even lunch times, you can see the spike where people, you know, have ducked out on their lunch break and are watching or their lunch break at school, if you like, and watching sort of highlights catching up on mini matches or, you know, feature stories, whatever it may be. We do have that real time data, which also informs our content strategy in terms of editorial, uh, when we publish what we publish. And the good thing about the way we're set up is that we can completely adapt to what people like. So we won't you know, do 40 runs of a show if we know that no one's watching it or people aren't getting engaged in it. You know, we can sort of adapt as we go and, and change tact if we need to. And maybe back in the day when we thought people would never watch sport on the bus on a small screen, people could also afford to go to bed and hit record on their VHS and then maybe get up a bit earlier to watch a match that played out overnight um, on Australian time. But that wasn't sort of in an era of spoilers and information just being at your fingertips. So you probably could afford to get up at 5 a.m. before work and you're not going to have the result ruined for you by a thousand text messages from your friends who are out watching it or news alerts or whatever it may be. So 
in this era now where it's so easy to accidentally ruin things for yourself or for your friends, do people still catch up on sport? Like is there still an appetite to watch something later when realistically it's so hard to avoid the result? Yeah, it's a it's a fine line that one because social media is so crucial to our editorial strategy as well. I mean, over every platform on social, we have a different strategy that fits very neatly in with our actual linear TV or OTT catch-up or, or live strategy. So it is a bit of a balancing act, but at the same time, and to answer your question, yeah, absolutely, they do watch catch up, you know, through whether it's the full match replay, which, you know, the hardened fans will do, even if they've watched it live, they might watch it again. But we also offer a few different options, you know, for the time poor. We have what's called a mini match, which is a 24 minute version of a game, which is super popular. We had the idea pretty much as soon as we started at Optus Sport. And for some boring um, legal reasons, we weren't able to do it until about 12 months in. And we thought, okay, this is a a good idea, but we had no idea that it would take off the way it does. And our viewership on the mini-matches, for instance, all catch up uh, crazy. And same with mini-highlights. We try to just cut different versions of things to almost adapt to what the viewership is doing. And I think if they weren't willing to watch sport in that catch-up mode, then we would throw all the eggs into the live basket, but thankfully they are. Now, I think around the time of the FIFA World Cup, uh, I remember seeing a headline about kids getting free access to it. Talk to me about the motivation of giving kids free access to watching sport. Yeah, so that was the the FIFA Women's World Cup uh, a little earlier this year. We were the only place that had every match uh, exclusively, and we went we went really hard with our, our production and and coverage around it, um, knowing that. You know, not only was it a big tournament for women's sport and for football, I mean, it's huge in France, it, you know, got a lot of traction, but it was also a a social statement potentially and had the opportunity, we had the opportunity there to be able to say something about women's sport more broadly, women's football and women's sport. So the idea was that we wanted to be able to, to give free subscriptions to school kids, not just girls, but boys as well, to be able to see you know, what successful high-level female sport looks like. And, you know, the colour, the vibrancy, the skill of the Women's World Cup in France was outrageously good. And I think from that standpoint, well, I hope that, you know, a lot of kids almost for the first time looked at women's football on the same stratosphere, if you like, as as men's. That was kind of the idea. The tagline of change the future they see is to almost present it to kids that, you know, men and women are equal in a sporting sense and there's no reason why you know young girls can't strive to become world champions in the same way that a lot of young boys do. And did you see much take up of that? Were there many kids watching the Women's World Cup via Optus Sport? Yeah, there were. We were really impressed actually with the way that people took in the tournament. Again, it was a tournament played at pretty ordinary hours overnight in in France so the live viewership was I would say um, consistent with what we expected but you know, the way that people took in everything else during the tournament, during the days, we launched for the first time during that tournament our written editorial arm, for instance. Um, our social media engagement all went through the roof across that month. And I think a lot of it was probably driven by that campaign, which got a lot of positive sentiment. And also our demographics, you do see that it's amazing how young the skew is. I, I think with international football in particular, you know, a lot of it is about celebrity and culture. And, you know, when we're broadcasting guys like Ronaldo and Lionel Messi, these guys, they transcend football itself. They go, they sort of move into, you know, pop culture almost. And I think that's a younger skew coupled with 
you know, the fact that we are available on the go on every device, we're seeing that younger audience really um, get into what we're doing. And did you have many kids getting up at stupid o'clock to watch the matches or were the so. sort of highlights more popular? The highlights were definitely more popular. I think that's pretty consistent uh, across the board. Um, women's football, I think, still has a way to go in terms of competing with the men's in terms of viewership. You know, I think across Australia, everyone is really engaged in the Matildas. You know, they're winners and they had a good chance of going deep into that tournament. I think a lot of people were tuned in to the narrative of that tournament. Um, the live viewership was solid without being completely mind-blowing, but we're hopeful that that what we did in laying the foundations uh, during that tournament will, you know, have women's football uh, in a good place the next time we broadcast it. So obviously football, as in soccer, is a huge part of Optus Sport. You know, we've talked about the EPL, which is the English Premier League. We've talked about the FIFA World Cup, both in terms of the women's and, and men's variations of it. But are there any other types of sports that you're interested in that you haven't yet gotten into? How far can the Optus Sport sort of tentacles go? Well, I would think personally it can definitely go further than it has. I think we've used the three and a half years we've been operational to kind of lay the foundations and, and prove that not only can we do it technically, I mean, we've had some hiccups, no doubt about that, but we've weathered those and we're in a really good place now technically. Um, but also, as I said before, I, I think we've proven that we are authentic and we want to do it properly. That's one sport, as you say, soccer, football. Um, I would think a lot of people that whether they watch football live or not, they know that we are genuine when it comes to that. And I would hope that if we were to move into another sport, whenever that may be, um, that people would have you know, accepted that, okay, those guys know what they're doing and that's a good place for my favourite sport to be. Uh, personally, I'm interested in a lot of different sports, <laughs> so I'd love for us to one day move into others. Um, at this stage, probably can't really give away too much, but uh, certainly we want to grow bigger than we have so far. And even if consumers do accept, okay, Optus Sport know what they're doing now, the technical glitches are mostly overcome, I'm on board with what they bring to the table, there is often, even when something moves to subscription television or if there's a bit of a shake-up in the broadcast rights, people can get quite defensive and, and they, even if they're not people who traditionally watch a lot of free-to-air TV, they suddenly want things to be on free-to-air TV as a sort of a quality of access thing. So, does that factor into your considerations at all in that people are so protective of their sports and still, despite declines in free-to-air TV, quite protective of free-to-air TV as well? So how do you get that balance right where you want to sort of get your hands on more things but you also don't want your brand to be, you know, the big evil tech player coming in and taking things off people's TV screens? Yeah, absolutely. I think if you respect an individual's sport or sport more broadly – you know how to tread that that fine line. You know, we're all sports lovers. You know, we all started watching sport on linear, you know, free-to-air TV as well. So we're certainly cognizant of the fact that people can get quite defensive because at the end of the day as well, in Australia, I think we're quite fortunate here compared to a lot of places in the world with what is free, what's on the anti-siphoning list and what is protected. Um, but also there's, you know, a lot of sport is also – only ever pushed forward once it's got the the financial backing in the broadcast as well. And I think using Premier League as an example, that's only ever been on subscription TV. So that was maybe less of a, a jarring thing for people to get their heads around the fact they had to pay to watch it. The way we 
kind of rationalize it is that we give absolutely everything we can for free across our socials, for instance. You know, the way we publish um, leading up to and after a match day, we give away a lot of stuff, you know, goals, highlights, um, interviews. We pretty much push the envelope as much as we can with that. Obviously, we want to get a wider group of people engaged with Optus Sport to see what we're about. Uh, but also, you know, we don't want to be the ones denying people from from seeing a highlight or a goal um, or two here or there. So um, we're always thinking about how we can be fair whilst also, you know, realising the reality of what modern broadcasting is all about. And how closely tied is Optus Sport to Optus in terms of using one to convert it into a customer for the other? Does If I'm going to watch Optus Sport, do I have to be with Optus and do you want to convert me? How how much do you think about that? Well, you don't have to be an Optus customer to um, get Optus Sport. You can sign up just for a sort of month-to-month subscription. Um, I, I guess in terms of operationally for us, there isn't a whole heap of crossover. I mean, we're located in the same place. We ultimately all, all work for, for the bigger Optus. You know, the things we think about that maybe other broadcasters can't, the things that Optus maybe bring to the table, you know, retail stores and access to so many, you know, nine or 10 million uh, accounts uh, across the country. You know, it's such a big footprint that Optus has. So we see opportunity in that in sort of getting our message out to people and putting Optus Sport in front of people and sort of showing potential customers for the first time, hey, have you ever thought about the Premier League um, because it's great um, or whatever else we may have? That's the interaction that, we kind of have with the wider Optus uh, in terms of how the wider Optus sees us. I, I guess we're kind of forcing that disruption or that change that we spoke about initially. Um, it's definitely not, you know, down your throat. You can't have Optus Sport unless you're an Optus customer. I guess in an ultimate, you know, the ultimate aim would be for us to provide a really good experience for people out there that maybe haven't had Optus before and they might decide, you know what, like, I can probably go with Optus with my phone too because I really like Optus Sport. It'll be cheaper or maybe free if I've got an Optus phone plan or internet. That's the ideal state. But by the same token, you know, we're just trying to create uh, good sporting content as well. Speaking of good sporting content, there are quite a lot of options out there now, including Foxtel's KO. Where do you think you sit in the landscape of streaming sports services compared to your competitors? Well, I think we're in a really good place. I, I think, you know, you look at the fact earlier on in the season, um, football season-wise, so two or three months ago, we uh, released the fact that we were beyond 700,000 subscribers. Uh, and the good news for us uh, as well is that a high percentage of those are always engaged. We've got really good engagement. So we know that we've built a product that whilst we went through that kind of teething phase and tried to build up to something that we could be really proud of, We've kind of got there now. We have viewers and subscribers that really enjoy what we do, so they keep coming back. So we're pretty confident in our own skin, I guess you could say, about where we are. We always have a look at our competitors too because, one, it's always good to see what other people are doing to get ideas and to sort of improve ourselves, but also we most of us love sport too, so we end up watching quite a bit of the other um, entertainment properties on the one you mentioned, for instance, or even you know the, the more – TV lifestyle stuff to try to see where we can improve, what we can bring into our product to make it better. Now, I had a terrifying revelation the other day that it's not too long before we head into a new decade, which is something that I probably should have realized some time ago, but it's November and and here we are. So that's often a chance for consumers and businesses to reflect and think about what they've achieved and, and what's next. So 
heading into a new decade, 2020, what's on the table for Optus Sport? What are you looking to achieve? I guess we want to continue our upward trajectory. I think the World Cup, we had some significant challenges that, you know, whenever the Prime Minister's calling your CEO and saying, hey, I'm not too happy about this, you would call that a, a significant challenge and we kind of weathered the storm. And the good news for both, I think, viewers and ourselves after that was that we didn't quit, we didn't give up. We said, no, we're going to double down. We're going to make sure that we're doing a great job, deliver for our customers. Um, we've done that. We've kind of weathered that little uh, storm. And we're now in a period where there's significant growth. So obviously, we just want to keep doing that. Um, we want to look after prospective customers, but also our current ones as well. As I said, I, I feel like most of them are getting to the point of not only enjoying Optisport, but being advocates as well. I, I see across a lot of the socials, people do stick up for us a lot. They like the product, the ones that are engaged to watch the Champions League, Europa League, Premier League, whatever it is. They like what we're doing, so we want to keep making those people happy so they can build that brand advocacy for us. Um, and who knows, if we add some more sport potentially or other leagues, whatever it may be, we don't want to plateau. That's from a sporting rights perspective and a production editorial sense as well, but also technologically, we want to be able to offer more. We've got a plan to offer 4K in 2020, which is a big uh, strategic point of us moving to the next level. So the Euro 2020 tournament, which will be played in June and July. That'll be broadcast in 4K. Uh, some of the other competitions as well, uh, football-wise, will be in 4K. So we want to be able to leverage the the technology that Optus has um, got at its disposal. Um, 5G coming along is a big um, uh, big turning point potentially as well for Optus and all telcos, and we want to be the ones to really deliver high-quality video streaming uh, in live sports. So hopefully 2020 is just building on what we've done and uh, adding some really exciting pieces of technology as well. All right, Richard Bayless, for somebody who got up at three o'clock this morning, you've done <laughs> remarkably well. So thank you for joining me on the Mumbrella Cast today. No worries, Viv. Thank you. Before we wrap up this week, if you or one of your colleagues is looking to boost your career, Mumbrella Next is being held on the 10th of December in Sydney and is aimed specifically at people in the industry who might be a bit newer. So if you've been around for... 10 years or a bit less, then this event is for you. We're going to have topics to help you take your career to the next level with really high-level speakers, including the Chief Marketing Officer of Coles, Lisa Ronson, the Head of CHE Proximity, Chris Howitson, the CEO of Nova Entertainment, Kathy O'Connor, and many, many more. So head to mumbrella.com.au slash nextawards for all the details on both the awards and the half-day conference that precedes it. That is it for this week. So Hannah, Brittany, thank you for joining me. Thank Thanks. you.